For those of you who don't know me, uh, I am Matt. I'm the associate pastor at our church, and this is my fourth time I've been able to give the message for our Good Friday service. Uh, the first time was in 2020, right after the nation was in solid lockdown, and so we did a live stream from the basement of my house. So I'm very thankful that we're not in that time anymore and we can all be together. And I'm excited uh, to be able to speak uh, to you on the seven last words of Christ. It seems that as humans, we have a fascination with people's last words. You can find books and articles that are basically just compilations of different famous people in the last words they said, the things that they said in their final moments of life here on this earth. I think the reason that we are so interested in the last words people say is because a lot of times it reveals a lot about who that person is and what they really care about. You don't waste your last breath making a comment about the weather. Talk about the things that really matter to you, and you don't spend your last moments uh, in pretense or in falsehood. You, you, you want to say what's true. And so the last words of a person can tell us a great deal. Some last words are inspiring, like those of Nathan Hale. Maybe you learned about him in history class. As he was about to be executed for his involvement in the American Revolution, he exclaimed, I only regret that I have but one life to lose to my country. And his last words show us a little bit about his bravery, about what he valued. You also have less inspiring last words, like that of the famous circus promoter P.T. Barnum, whose final words were, how were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? I think that reveals pretty clearly what Mr. P.T. Barnum was all about. This afternoon, I want to look at the last words of Christ before his death on the cross. As Christ hung on the cross, he spoke seven last words or phrases, and I believe that as we look at these seven last words of Christ together, it's going to reveal much about who Christ is and the significance and meaning of Christ's death on the cross. These seven last words of Christ are not all found in one single gospel. Uh, they're found in all four of the gospels, uh, but we've compiled them together this afternoon in our best guess of what the chronological order might be. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Uh, that'll be the first two. There's Bibles in the pews if you would like to use them, and we'll flip around a little bit, but that is where we're going to start. And as we look at the seven last words of Christ together, I think we'll see how they reveal Christ's humility on the cross, Christ's suffering on the cross, and Christ's completed work on the cross. First, we see Christ's humility on the cross. The first three of the last words of Christ really all point toward this reality of Christ's humility. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 defines humility as counting others as more significant than yourselves and looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This humility 
is said to characterize the mind of Christ. And as we look at these three statements, we find how true that is. Because even as Christ was in agony on the cross, he looked to the needs of others. The first of Christ's last words is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus says this, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ speaks these words as he hangs on the cross, and what is even more amazing is he speaks these words concerning the very people who put him there. The Roman soldiers who had scorched him with whips, who bashed into his head a crown of thorns, who drove nails through his hands and his feet and are at this moment scoffing at him and gambling for his clothes. Of those same soldiers, Christ prays, Father, forgive them. The Jewish religious leaders who, through deceit and a sham trial, had arranged for Christ to be crucified, who even now are scoffing and mocking him as he hangs in agony, of those religious leaders, Christ prays, Father, forgive them. What an amazing display of the mercy of Christ. Here we see Christ not only commanded us earlier in the Gospels to love our enemies, but here he demonstrates it so clearly. It's hard for us to love our enemies. It's hard to resist hitting back at those who have hurt us. But if Jesus can pray, Father, forgive them, such vile men as these, how can we withhold forgiveness from anyone who has done us wrong? And if Christ can show love to the people whose hatred put him on the cross, how can we fail to show love to our enemies? These words of Christ also remind us that Christ's desire that sinners be forgiven is what led him to the cross. It is by Christ's death on the cross that forgiveness of sins is possible. Colossians 2, 13-14 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven all our trespasses. But how does this forgiveness come? The rest of the verse tells us by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. From the cross, Jesus, in mercy, cries, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And by Christ's blood, he provides the answer to his own prayer so that all those who repent and believe can receive forgiveness from God. Christ's words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Remind us of his mercy and forgiveness that was bought at the cross. The second of Christ's last words is found in Luke chapter 23 in verse 43. So just go down a few verses there. And we're going to go ahead and actually start in verse 39 to give some context. 
Verse 39 says, And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, for you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And here we have Jesus' second of his last words. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. These are the words that Jesus speaks to one of the criminals who is hung on a cross beside him. And it's surprising a little bit at the repentance of this criminal. We don't know exactly what crimes he had committed, but Romans typically reserve crucifixion for the worst of the worst criminals, the most heinous of crimes. Whatever this man had done, it must have been pretty bad. Because by his own words, he believes that his horrible punishment by crucifixion is fair. Mark 15 also tells us that in the beginning, it's not just one of the criminals who's reviling Christ. It is both of them. And yet this hardened criminal who had the audacity to mock Jesus as he hung on the cross, now has a change of heart. And in these short verses, we see that he recognizes his sin for what it is, and he recognizes Jesus for who he is, innocent and the King of Kings. My grandfather was very hostile towards Christianity. And towards the end of his life, I was able to share the gospel with him in the hospital. And he looked at me and he said, I'm sorry, but it's too late for me. Brothers and sisters, stories like this show us that that just isn't true. It is never too late for a sinner to repent and come to Christ. No one is ever too far beyond God's reach. And if you feel like it's too late for you, if you feel like you're beyond saving because of something that you've done, I want you to listen closely to Christ's response to the repentant criminal in verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Christ promises salvation to this criminal that very day. And what did the criminal do? To deserve this? What did he do to save himself? All the criminal does is repents and believes. He doesn't get baptized. He doesn't join a church. He doesn't give tithes or serve in a ministry or do all sorts of good deeds. And all those things are good things which Christ calls us to do and we should do. But the salvation of the criminal on the cross makes crystal clear that none of those things saves us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if you believe that you are beyond the grace of God, 
Or if you were relying on anything other than God's grace through faith for your salvation, remember the criminal on the cross and Christ's words to him. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We find the third of the last words of Christ found in John 19. So go ahead and and keep uh, your spot in Luke 23, but if you'd like, you can turn to John 19. We'll be there for the next two of Christ's last words. Uh, This word also demonstrates the incredible humility of Christ on the cross. In Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph go to present Jesus as a baby at the temple, a man named Simeon prophesies to Mary. He says that because of her son, it would be the rising and falling of many in Israel. And he says to her specifically that because of her son, a sword would pierce through her own soul. And now that moment has arrived. As Mary stands at the foot of the cross, I can only imagine the soul-piercing agony as she sees her son mutilated beyond recognition, abandoned, slowly dying on a cross, and there's nothing that she can do to help him. As a parent, I cannot even comprehend how painful and agonizing that would be. But Jesus looks down from the cross, and he sees his mother, and look at what he says in John 19, 25. It says this, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her to his own home. And we got to understand what is going on here. It seems likely at this point that Mary's husband, Joseph, has passed away. And so Jesus, as the eldest son, had the responsibility as the eldest son to make sure that his mother was taken care of, to make sure that her needs were met, that she was provided for. And now, as he knows that he's about to die and can no longer carry out that responsibility to care for his mother, he calls out to his mother and to the disciple whom Jesus loved, which was likely John, and he arranges that John would take care of his mom. We see Jesus' humility in here, arranging to care for the needs of his mother, even as he is in agony on the cross. When we're in pain, it's really hard to be concerned with the needs of others. We could be so focused on ourselves and our pain, and we, we almost expect everybody else to be focused on us too. But from the agony of the cross, Christ takes time to make sure his mother will be taken care of when he's gone. What an example for us. If we ever feel tempted to be self-focused or self-centered, if we ever feel like our pain is an excuse for caring for others, remember the words of Christ, woman, Behold your son, behold your mother. We have seen in Christ's first three of his last words, the humility of Christ on the cross, and now we move to the next section, which is Christ's suffering 
on the cross. The next two of Christ's last words focus on Christ's suffering. And sometimes our children's Bibles and uh, Christian movies can candy coat the suffering of Christ. And we could try to minimize it. But the reality is that Christ suffered unfathomable agony on the cross. And we see this described in the next two of his last words. Go ahead and look down at John 19, verse 28. It says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I thirst. A lot of commentators and, and different pastors have tried to spiritualize this, but really, I think these words are speaking and highlighting the physical agony of Christ on the cross. We've heard some from our scripture reading and the physical sufferings of Christ, how he was scourged, how a crown of thorns was beaten onto his head, how the nails were pounded through his hands and his feet, and he was stripped of his clothes and hung on a cross for all to see. But all of that wasn't even the worst part of crucifixion. You see, the most horrible part of being crucified is that it was a slow and agonizing death. People could hang there for hours, even days, as they slowly succumbed to blood loss, dehydration, heart failure, or asphyxiation. And this is what is happening to Jesus on the cross as he says these words. And sometimes we, we feel like maybe Jesus didn't suffer like us, but because Jesus was fully God and fully man, he feels every degree of pain on that cross that you or I would. He is experiencing untold physical agony, and his body begins to near the end. He cries out in dehydration, I thirst. Now, as I was thinking about these words and reflecting on this week, I was thinking about how ironic it is that the God who created water, who created the oceans and the rivers and the ponds, who sends the rain on the unjust and the just, and the God who promised in John 4 that all who thirst could come to him and be giving living water is now suffering and dying from dehydration. What amazing love Christ displays that he would suffer so much to save us. And yet there's something else to note about these words of Christ. We look back at John 19, 28. It says that Jesus said these things to fulfill the scripture. And this reminds us that Christ's death was not an accident, that Christ's death was prophesied in God's word, and Christ's thirst fulfills at least two prophecies in Scripture. In Psalm 22, we see hundreds of years before Christ's death happens, the Messiah is described in this way in his suffering. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Even more clearly, we see this in Psalm 69, 21, which says this, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And so in these words of Christ, we are reminded that Christ's death on the cross was no accident. It was part of the plan of God. 
Christ is not a helpless victim here. He doesn't get dragged to the cross against his will. He sees the horrors of the cross. He knows what it's going to mean. He knows the pain that is coming, and he goes there willingly in accordance with the plan of God made before the foundations of the world because that was God's plan and the only way to save us. And so as we hear Christ's words, I thirst, we should stand in awe of the love of Christ and the providence of God that led to the cross. The fifth of Christ's last words is found in Matthew 27, also in Mark 15. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to, it's Matthew 27, 46. At this point, Darkness has fallen over the land, which is really strange and unusual because it is in the middle of the day. And at this point, Christ has been languishing on the cross for about six hours. Matthew 27, 46 tells us that he says this. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words are perhaps some of the most haunting words in all of Scripture. And these words speak to the incredible spiritual suffering and agony of Christ. The physical suffering of Christ, yes, that is unimaginably terrible, but the agony of Christ's soul on that cross is far, far worse. Have you ever felt crushed by the weight of your sin? Maybe you did something that just, you can't get past it, you, you regret it, you see the damage that it caused and you feel that shame, and you feel that weight that is on your shoulders. On the cross, Christ bore the weight of the sins of the world. It's hard for us even to understand that, but every evil thought, every evil word, every evil deed, every sin, both the big and the heinous ones and the small ones that were ever committed or will be committed by those who trust in Christ were laid on the back of the sinless one. What an unimaginable burden. And yet Christ bore the weight of the sins on the cross for us. And then he bore God's wrath. The eternal love between God the Father and God the Son that has existed for all eternity uh, was replaced by the terrifying cup of God's wrath poured out on Christ. God's wrath towards the sins of the world fell on Christ, wrath that we deserved for our sin, and yet Christ bore the wrath that was reserved for us. John Piper says this, we cannot begin to fathom all this would mean between the Father and the Son. To be forsaken by God is the cry of the damned, and he was damned for us.
So when we hear Christ's words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are reminded of the unimaginable spiritual agony of Christ on the cross and how much our salvation cost the Son of God. We've seen the humility of Christ on the cross. We've seen the suffering of Christ on the cross. And lastly, in the final two words of Christ, we see the completed work of Christ on the cross. The completed work of Christ on the cross. John chapter 19, if we go back there in verse 30, we hear the sixth of Christ's last words. And in this word and in Christ's final words, we begin to see some hopefulness. John 19.30 says this, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. In Greek, this is just one word, tetelestai. And it means that an activity or a process has been completed. So if you're working on a project like a house or, or you're building something and you finish it and it's all done, you could look at that project and say, Tetelestai, it is finished. It is complete. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing more to add, nothing more for me to do. And so when Christ says it is finished, what exactly has been completed? Scripture shows us very clearly that what Christ means when it is finished, what has been finished is Christ's payment for our sin on the cross. He bore the penalty of our sin on the cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, and now Christ cries not in defeat, but in victory. It is finished. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus paid it all. For those of us in Christ, every sin we committed and will commit has been paid for in full on the cross. And so Christ cries in victory, it is finished because he has completely satisfied the wrath of God for our sin in our place. He died once and for all to save us. Nothing can be added to the work of Christ. But we can have forgiveness now because Christ bore our sin on the cross because Christ was forsaken by God so that we never have to be and can instead be called sons and daughters. And I hope that causes you to rejoice this afternoon in our hearts to sing the words of the hymn, It Is Well. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but in whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. So if you are a believer feeling weighed down by your sin, remember Christ's cry, it is finished. Your sin is paid in full. There's nothing you can do to add to the work of Christ. There's no way you can make up for your sin. It is finished. So come to God and repent and receive the forgiveness that Christ already paid for with his blood. 
And if you don't know Christ, you will someday have to pay the penalty for your sin. Someday you will have to bear the wrath of a holy God for all eternity. And I plead with you, turn to Christ who became sin for us so that we can stand forgiven at the cross. So when we hear the words of Christ, it is finished. When we hear that victory cry, we rejoice in the work of Christ that has been completed, our sins that have been paid for in full on the cross. We find Christ's seventh and final of his last words in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Jesus' life is fading and here's what he says with his last breath in Luke 23, 46. He says this, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Christ's final words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These is actually a quote from Psalm 31.5, which says this, Into your hand I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And as Christ's life is fading away in those final words, Christ entrusts himself to God, and he rests in his hands. These words also express Christ's hope knowing that death was not the end, but that he was going to be with the Father, and knowing that in three days he would be resurrected from the dead. There's a peacefulness to Christ's words, a confidence in his victory here. Satan thought he had the victory on the cross, but Christ shows that that's not true. He has finished his work and with a final cry, he yields up his spirit to the Father. These words of Christ remind us that whatever pain or suffering we might be experiencing, even in the midst of those darkest moments, we can trust God and have this peace as well. If Christ can entrust himself to the Father on the cross, how much more can we entrust ourselves to God in our pain? How much more can we rest and trust in God's faithful and steadfast hands? And so when we hear the words, the final words of Christ, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, we are reminded that the story doesn't end at the cross. And we're encouraged to entrust ourselves to God. As we've looked at the seven of these last words of Christ, we're reminded of the incredible humility of Christ the agonizing suffering of Christ, and we rejoice in the completed work of Christ on the cross. We know that Christ's death is not the end of the story. And we know that these seven last words are not really Christ's last words because, spoiler alert, in three days, he is resurrected from the dead. But let's not rush to the empty tomb just yet. 
Let's linger at the foot of the cross a little bit longer, reminding ourselves of Christ's selflessness, suffering, and completed work as he hung on that tree 2,000 years ago. And let's continue to feel the weight of how much our salvation cost the Son of God and how great his love is for sinners like us.